Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Global civilization is clearly on the edge of failure. What are you really afraid of? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? The moral to be drawn from this nightmare situation is a simple one. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. More than machinery, we need humanity. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labeled impractical. Our birth, our death, our being in the moment, these are mysteries. They are doorways opening on to unimaginable vistas of self-exploration. The contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. The society is trying to cure itself by an archaic revival. What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? The world is not an unsolved problem for scientists or sociologists. The world is a living mystery. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Welcome to Death in the Garden. This podcast seeks to explore the mythologies of our time in an era of converging crises. The interviews you will hear on this podcast are from our upcoming film. We are questioning the cultural assumptions about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. Hello, everybody. This is... uh... We'll make this intro quick. This is kind of a special podcast. We talked with James Connolly, the producer of Death in the Garden, about the Barbenheimer phenomenon and kind of based it around this awesome essay that Marin recently wrote about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It was a really fun discussion. I know we haven't posted a podcast in a long time, but, uh, you know, we're hopefully this is interesting to people. We're trying to show that the worldview that we're kind of trying to to show with death in the garden is really just like interrogating ideas like really thinking about things like having conversations around like how we're being manipulated by the culture by media and all of these things and just just trying to have candid conversations about it and so this was just a really fun like riff on many many different ideas we talked about so many different things and so i hope that this is interesting to everybody um at the end you're gonna hear that jake is like i like we have to be done because i'm on painkillers he just got his wisdom teeth out and so (laughs) so it was a little bit of a struggle (laughs) life pro tip don't get your wisdom teeth removed at 30 it just gets worse (laughs) uh well we love you all enjoy this and please go check out Marin's essay Uh, it is awesome as always on our Substack, um death in the garden Substack. uh what's the name of piece uh why barbenheimer is deeper than we think yes go check it out um and please listen to this podcast if you can leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to this on it helps us out greatly thank you so much yeah thank you for being here we appreciate you awesome man well good to see you this will be fun talking about this stuff i feel like (laughs) texting occasionally does not uh suffice for this very important topic (laughs) barbenheimer yeah yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it, there's like a part of me that 
that wants to riff on it in the way that like you would kind of riff on anything that's kind of kind of coming out of hollywood um but it, it's a very somber like topic right yeah. um and there's so much of a part of me following the japanese uh, experience of watching uh having this thing become a phenomenon and also be attached to uh, this sort of, you know, like marketing and merchandising element of it that kind of goes into this. And um, yeah, it's a Barbenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, like, I, 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 I just think about like, how do you create something? We were just talking right before we started about the cacophony of like events that are kind of happening on it, you know, a, a minute by minute basis. And yet somehow you get these two like rarefied strange little things that kind of come together at this moment and you you talk about the surreal experience of like walking into the movie theater when i went to go see oppenheimer it was on a small screen it wasn't probably bigger than the one that you saw but i saw all of these people coming out like teenagers adults everybody wearing pink going into you know coming out of seeing this movie you know and it reminded me of um uh andrew wyatt's father uh, Andrew Wyeth was a uh, he's a he's a painter, um, and he created this sort of generation of like students, uh, uh, children uh, that all became either painters or scientists or something like that. He homeschooled his children, um, and he was a like turn of the century, like early, um, uh, you know, uh, illustrator of uh, a, a lot of you know um, like Americana, um, like really really good books. Um, he was a really interesting guy, and he, Andrew Wyeth, I think, is one of the top four art, artists today alive. But he wouldn't let his kids go to movies. Um, mm. But what he would do is make them sit uh, at the entrance or the exit to the theater and, and look at the faces of the people who walked out. And he was always like, he was always remarked at the way that that movies just didn't generate conversation. People would walk out in view, like you know the the, the sort of entertainment value of the stuff but it never struck conversation people can come out arguing a point or you know spending that much time talking about the film other than oh did you like it did you not like it were you entertained or were you not entertained um and so like when i do those things i always think of nc wyeth i'm like so what is happening to these people as they're watching this like what is the conversation that's happening as they're walking out um and i do feel like in some ways oppenheimer did that right like i do think people had these conversations afterwards um you know but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think it is. It, I was I've been joking with Marin how the universe seems to play just funny jokes. The fact that Oppenheimer and Barbie come out in the same weekend, and the ideas that they're trying to discuss is just hilarious. That they they would come out in the same weekend, and it seems like this weird universal irony to fuck with us. But it also is like a moment for the culture if anybody's paying attention to actually have to recognize one that they came out in the same weekend and what that means for us, but also like that there was very little conversation truly being had about what was important about not only the conflict between the two movies, but what I would say like Oppenheimer, which had a better, much more to talk about. You know, when we when we saw it in theaters, I remember it was the first time in a long time that I'd one gone to a theater and seen a movie, but I, for for better or for worse, I, I didn't have a, I was very, uh, uh, 
disturbed walking out of that movie. For whatever reason, I was very disturbed for a lot of reasons, and and it took me a while, but I knew I had to talk about it. And luckily, the friend group we went with, we we did talk a, a lot about it. It did spark a lot of conversation within us. For days, really. For days, really. And so I think on that level, it was a success to get at least me talking about those ideas. But I also think a lot about the ideas that were already in that movie. But what I was disappointed with was when the movie came to an end, how many people just got up and got right out. You know, there was a few groups of people who I could tell were talking about it. And like couldn't couldn't help but just like start talking about it immediately. Like they had to kind of get it out of their system. But then I would feel like 90% of the people were just a little bit disappointed that the bomb wasn't cooler and walked out. You're right. It just. uh, Or that there was too much dialogue. There there was too too much dialogue. It was too long. It was too slow. And, and, you know, I hate arguments about movies like that way. So on that regard, I I feel like Oppenheimer and I haven't seen Barbie, but it's already stimulated a lot of conversation in our in our household I think for reasons that maybe the filmmakers didn't intend but I do think that Oppenheimer stimulated a lot of a lot of thought with me and moved me in a way I didn't walk out being entertained by that movie I actually ended up with sweaty palms and I was angry and frustrated for a lot of reasons and just mad and it was I was kind of surprised that I uh, a movie hasn't done that to me in a long time and I think it's sometimes when even if you don't like a movie or something even if it can kind of get in your head a little bit and at least stimulate part of you. I think a movie is a is a success because I think movies should be art and they it should make you angry or mad or sad or whatever whatever the intended purpose is. Even if it's a failure, I think if it doesn't arouse something in you that that's what makes a a, a film a failure, you know. And there's sort of a paradox there too because it's like going in like going into barbie and recognizing that the majority of people in the world are viewing this as entertainment with a slice of like real real feminism in it right like and so so mm-hmm. everyone who recommended it to me was like you know it's you're, you're gonna love it it's really funny you're gonna it's just gonna be so funny and like there's so many moments in that movie where you're like you could tell that they were trying to make a joke and it just like the theater is just completely silent you know it was just like mm-hmm. it was like yucks like they were trying to like make you like yuck or and it was just <laughs> but like you know i could i could tell that it's like the, it's this very like mindless phenomenon whereas like i think for with with oppenheimer at least for me um you know i went into it with a lot of expectation because i was very excited about this movie because just because of the ideas that we talk about, because it's like, you know, we're often discussing these scientists from the early the early 20th century and like the impact that they've had on the world, like at, at these particular moments where the sort of start of this like boom and bust like world began and decisions were made, you know, whether it's Fritz Haber, you know, turning like mm-hmm. giving uh, the earth ni- uh, 40% more nitrogen than it had before, like, you know, th- these these decisions that were made in wartime that have led to an entirely different world. Like, they really changed the world. And so, obviously, like, these ideas are on my mind a lot, and I think about them a lot. And I think um, discussing and under- trying to understand these scientists is, is an important yeah. part of the, the process. But just the, the difference between um, the way that Barbie is consumed and the way that it's... It, the I, I feel like I had to embody a very like party pooper Debbie Downer persona which is kind of my my persona anyway but like (laughs) but like I had to like really step into that in order for me to actually be able to have a a 
critique of that film right like it's like mm-hmm. it's it's created such a phenomenon where like in my, in the piece that i wrote like women are breaking up with their boyfriends just for not being interested in watching the movie like and to me like i just feel like this movie is so fraudulent like it's it's so much more about just pushing these commodities and pushing these objects pushing a fad pushing a trend than it is talking about anything substantial and real although the, those themes are present in the movie like it's it's all uh, has it, it's all clouded by this veneer of corporatism and so like it, it was just such a different sort of experience of like I know I knew when Oppenheimer was over that it was going to create a lot of conversation we were going to have a lot of really good talks about it um but Barbie I I knew that I had to kind of like be be more aggressive or more assertive with my opinion in a way like um not, not with the people that we were talking about it with but it's just like you know I, I know a lot of people like don't want to hear my opinion about Barbie right like I, I know that that's like an unpopular my, my take is unpopular and um, yeah. You know, and, and and I was just sorry. You go ahead. Well, I just want to put maybe if I could, we could, you know, kind of hit the nail on the head as we begin this conversation. Is that I think for the three of us, the real kind of thing that's happening in our brains that at least I think the three of us see, and maybe anybody who is listening, is that there's like this kind of symbolic conflict between two movies that are both claiming to be profound things, saying profound things about modernity. You know, you we have like this feminist take on this capitalist demon totem Barbie that is supposed to be like alleviate quote unquote feminist quote unquote I, I wouldn't feminist. say that it's like very and then we have on the other hand a movie that's supposed to be talking about the consequences of some of the most devastating technological advances in modern times Oppenheimer and so for I think for the three of us I just want to make it clear that we see there's like this this conflict within the the modern world as it is with its inability to look at either of these things very clearly if that <clears> makes any sense I just want to make that clear. I think that's what we're kind of getting at here. Yeah. And trying to get a sense of, you know, the my friend uh, Anthony uh, made the point that you you actually, the, both of these actually make uh, or take place during a, a pretty narrow window of time in the 20th century. Um, and so you get uh, the origins of Barbie based on a, uh, you know, a, a trip to Germany, a post-war trip to Germany. Um by the, the the founder of Barbie uh, on her honeymoon, and she discovers this doll, um, and then sort of takes that idea back to the United States and sort of creates it. She doesn't understand the the history of it. Um, she is Jewish. Uh, she there is a sort of history that kind of flows through that, which was um, the way I described it to myself is like, what are we fighting for? Type of history, right? So the a lot of these dolls were. Uh, in essence, like in the cockpits of, of German fighter aircraft. Um, they started started out the original sort of conceptual relationship of that doll um, was primarily centered around um, creating that like Aryan ideal um, that, you state, that you also see transferred into Barbie in the United States. Um, and so the ahistorical aspect of the origin of this um, doesn't necessarily like I don't there's no way that that was discussed in the film right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right um, you know it, it you know and so you you need for that to not exist in order to create this pattern that then becomes the US involvement with this idea of Barbie and so the only story that you hear is oh you know she named it after her daughter and she wanted to create this doll that you know um, 
and then you have the other side of it, which was, um, you know, there there were comics at the time that 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 doll may have been um, associated with that were also this very freewheeling kind of like maybe she was a call girl, maybe it's a little bit of breakfast to Tiffany's, um, this very like open woman who uh, like controls and dominates men and has an authority in her own life, and you know, but she sells her body. Uh, in order to you know make ends meet and you know to continue, so you get all of that stuff. But it seems in my head to be uh, historically happening with the trials of Oppenheimer, um, who was for a very short window in period of time considered a hero who saved you know American soldiers, um, and then you move into this space where it's like it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your your loyalty is always you know, uh, to the story of America, the story of anti-communism, the story of all of, the, all of these different things interwoven. And you can you can essentially be on the outside of that very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and you have these grown adults playing out these uh, games of, you know, retaliation and vengeance, <laughs> all these different things, Play, you know, playing with these objects that are world destroying. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so like for me, like I'm, I'm remembering Kissinger wanting to use tactical nukes in warfare. Uh, I remember, you know, that was first deployment. Uh, a lot of the uh, initial idea was to, to use this strategically uh, to win an all out war against communism. Uh, you have these people, these politicians using these things, using that science. And it takes me back to Fritz Haber. Right. So mm -hmm. Fritz Haber, you know, is trying to deal with what is. Um, again, a world-ending fiasco, which is um, you know the fossil fuel, uh, the, the birth of fossil fuel fertilizers, um, the birth of bringing back fertility into the land. He invents the uh, the process of you know fixing nitrogen, um, and then you utilize that thing that is so quintessential to life. Um, you know, this, like even the atomic structure, it totally could you know integral to life and but if you can take that you can twist it um and make a weapon of ultimate ultimate mass destruction um and so haber goes he does all of that stuff uh for this newly formed germany right he considers himself like nationally german born in germany a german scientist you know in one of the most educated places on the planet uh, and he considers himself to be like ethnically German. And then Hitler comes around, he says, no, you're not, right? You are a suspect, you're a Jewish. Um, he flees um, and has to escape from all of that persecution, but he loses you know, his entire family to the same you know, problem solving <laughs> that he produced. Mm -hmm. um, and so the weird parallels for me are just too hard and too striking sometimes to kind of think about. Um, and you make a really good point in your essay where, you know, people are kind of talking about AI as an Oppenheimer moment. And I'm also remembering um, there was a point where they started, uh, it was an Israeli firm that had figured out a way to sort of deep fake uh, videos. And so if they had somewhere, at, you know, 20 to 25 minutes of conversation um, and they had video of you, they could, in essence, like, program this to make you say anything that they want you could type it in it's going to have your your inflection your voice you know all of those different things and they asked the scientists at the time you know the original uh, idea behind it was you have you know you're you're in post-production for a film uh you 
uh, realize there's a huge gap in the storyline. You get your writers in, the writers write up this new thing, but now you have to get all the actors back. You have to rebuild the set. You've got to do all these different things. They're solving a problem. So the problem is that you can now just take that footage and you can make the, you know, maybe the actor flubbed his lines, you can change all of that stuff. So they're solving a problem. But the reporter is asking them, they're like, don't you think this could be used? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, in the most evil way you could possibly think of? And she's like, that's not my job to think of the tool as a thing. And I'm like, how? Like, yeah. how do you do that? Like, how do you go every single day, create something that like it never crossed your mind that this thing could be used to make you know a democratic president uh you know a, a fascist dictator like you know to you know to, to create doubt in people's minds as to you know the, the the way that we talk about the world economic forum or klaus schwab or you know the conspiracy theories or you know the jewish state or anything like that you could take every single one of these things and insert um you know with real credibility that people would not be able to tell that much of a difference some sort of conspiracy theory flat earther type of scenario um by which you can in essence say this is the agenda going forward and people will believe it because mm -hmm. they can see it with their own two eyes um mm -hmm. and ai is doing that oppenheimer is like creating this thing that he recognizes in the film and i think nolan does this really well uh, they're like, uh, the general is like, thank you very much. I'll contact you later. <laughs> right. After he's like, just standing on, you know, they're driving away with all this stuff. He's like, yeah. And you'll keep me in touch on what you're planning to do with it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you later. You know? And you're like, that is the moment for me. Like mm -hmm. it wakes exactly. you up and you're just like, oh my God, I want to talk about this because this is, this continuously happens, yes. you know? Exactly. And I think that ultimately that moment and that conflict is what, I have not stopped thinking about and I we've been thinking about it a lot for a while because it's this conversation about one the consequences of science and technological advancement if we want to call it in a world in which I mean this is kind of an assumption that most scientists or most people who graduate from universities and colleges with master's degrees and PhDs end up working for a corporation. I think there's very few independent scientists who are out there doing science, right? Um, and even that has its unintended consequences and I think the film does a really good job with leaving this conundrum of that it the time has long since passed in which scientists can kind of claim this neutrality of their um, discoveries or their research and I don't I don't want to you know vilify science or technology I think there is a, such an important place for that in a potential society but there is a responsibility that needs to be put on scientists there that they are not taking is that we live in a time and we live in a culture that is reinforcing narratives and hierarchies and power structures that there is no other way that their research can be used it can't be used any other way and no scientist is really taking on that responsibility and so I think Oppenheimer is such a great example of how somebody rationalizes those decisions. The fact that he didn't have any um, moral quandary until he understood that the U.S. military was going to use it any way they possibly could for any means to turn it into any sort of weapon. The first time that that really dawned on him, whether that's true or not, whether he was just trying to save his own skin, either way, that's an infuriating thing for another human to do. 
Um, well, and 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 there's this theme, you know, throughout the book, and I'm 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 I mean, God, that book is long. Uh, so I'm I'm not <laughs> I, like I, I'm chipping my way through American Prometheus because I really do think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but you know, there is this sort of recurrent theme, and I feel like Nolan did a good job of expressing this in the movie too. Is this this sort of naivety in Oppenheimer? Um, and and I think that that naivety is this idea of like. If I view the world one way and I view science and its capabilities in one way, then the world will conform to that. And so even though I'm making a bomb, that doesn't mean that it's going to be used indiscriminately. That doesn't mean it's going to be used in ways that disagree with me. And so I think that there's this sort of uh, like lack of wisdom. You know, there's like these moments where it's like for someone so brilliant, you, you lack so much wisdom. Like people often say that about mm -hmm. Oppenheimer in the book. And I think it also comes up in the movie. But um it, yeah, it's like it's like this thing is like, is it naivete? Is it is it justification? Is it rationalization? And I think it's a little bit of all of the above, because I think ego. that and ego. Yeah. Um, but I think what that comes down to for me is essentially this sort of like this thing that we always come to, which is that like we don't know that we are operating within a specific story. We don't know that society is moving in a particular direction and that we're feeding it in, in all of these particular ways. But it has this like, you know, this current that we're kind of all being forced to go under. And so it's not until you sort of like the, these people recognize this of like, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I what have I contributed to? Um, and the recognition, reckon, recognition that there is a mismatch in maybe the way that Oppenheimer understood the world, growing up wealthy, going to this ethical culture school, like maybe assuming that the world was different than it is, creating this thing that then can be used for like such horrible evil. Like how, how do you square that circle in your mind? How do you make that make sense for yourself? And this is, I think it's important, this is something that we are constantly talking about is that humans are inherently a tool-making and culture-making species. That is, in um, that is just so part of what makes us human. That's why we're human: is that we make tools, not necessarily technology, and we make culture, and those things reinforce each other. The culture defines what tools can even be imagined by those people, and the tools, because they're invented under a certain culture, reinforce the culture itself. And until we realize that, that will always be the case our tools and our technologies and our inventions will always reinforce the dominant culture of the times and if we don't have a wise inventor science class who understands that it's it uh, perpetuates whatever facets of the culture that deemed that item so necessary we i've been going down this luddite rabbit hole recently to try to like redefine this term Luddite. And the Luddites were such a fascinating group of people that were very articulate about what they were, why they were destroying these machines. And it had nothing to do with technology or progress or anything like that. They were very specific. They say, your machines and the people who own the machines are creating a new economic narrative in this country and it completely eradicates communities. It leaves hundreds of thousands of people in this country destitute and poor. And these people and all these people who are now poor used to be very affluent 
participating members of society and it has destroyed it and there are consequences. And they say in a lot of their letters, technologies have their consequences and until a community can vet the consequences of such a technology, you can't unleash them out on a community. It's very fascinating to hear them articulate these things. And they were articulating the, the looms that we have used for hundreds of years, these single owned and operated looms have been vetted by a community for many, many generations. And we know that they, they reinforce the structures within society that lead to a healthy society. And so we're okay with certain tools and certain technologies. And we live at a day and age in which new technologies and new tools are unleashed upon us day after day with no thought about the consequences or what they reinforce within society. And so I think that's the fear behind AI. And that's the fear behind so many new technologies is that we have, we are so unwise as a culture to take a moment and understand the consequences of each thing we bring into our societies. And I think ultimately, I think that could have been a starting point after people saw Oppenheimer to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, the, the, the current zeitgeist on, on AI is that China is working on it. Um, like all of the, the quote unquote enemies, of, uh, you know, and so unless if we made some sort of decision, there's just no, there's no, we have no concept in the opaqueness that is the other mm -hmm. as to whether or not they would ever stop. And we know it's a civilization defining end. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quantum computing, uh, passwords, none of that stuff will even exist anymore if you, you can create a quantum computer. Um, the whole basis of all of these things is this, it's, it's just another arms race. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so when I think about it, it's like the, the, the concept of mutually assured destruction, uh, which then became the de facto, uh, you know, element at one during the cold war was in essence sort of based off of, if you've ever seen a beautiful mind, you get John Nash who creates this idea of, um, a lot of the, the basic sort of economic, um, ideas that pervade our culture nowadays and centered around individualism the, you know the, the you only look out for yourself because the assumption is that only other people are looking out for themselves um and so everybody's looking out for themselves so i'll look out for myself by building as many nukes as i possibly can assuming that they're doing exactly the same thing uh, and so now you have all this shuttling of all of this, all of this money in this one direction based off of a theory that you know obviously like wins him you know international accolades that sort of game theory that we see mm -hmm. in terms of like picking up women at a bar sort mm -hmm. of like played out in the beautiful mind nothing to do with that it's about the ar nuclear arms race um and the rand corporation the r d corporation that was part of that and so you have these sort of like sort of general epic theories being played out all the time um, I would. One of the things that I kept on thinking about when I was watching the film was there was a Japanese artist who did. Um, you can actually see it online. Uh, he has a map of the world, um, and so from uh, you know um, August sixth, nineteen forty-five, he has the first nuke go off, and then you get the one, and then you get boom. You see this light up a pattern, uh, and then there's nothing for a while, and then you start to see this. Poof, and it's just all the nuclear tests that have been done. 
and it's hundreds. Mm -hmm. You see this total cacophony. It's like almost like a concerto of booms just going off, and it's so disturbing. It's just dots lighting up, <laughs> right, on a like a keyboard. But man, it is so disturbing. Leading into the '60s, into the '70s, you know, uh, and into the '80s, and you're like, oh my god, you just don't the Pacific atolls, the you know, the underwater explosions, the you know, the the nukes like traveling on these Russian and, and American subs all over the place. The three nukes that we dropped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Evidently, uh, one in Iceland. Uh, I think there's actually two in North Carolina, um, and one in Spain that ended up becoming a dirty, dirty bomb that we've spent, you know, a couple hundred million dollars cleaning up. Like, sorry, Spain, we dropped a nuke on you. You know. Oh wow! I didn't. Just know. Oh, wait, I had no off. idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there's uh, um, Eric Schlosser wrote a wrote a book called The Gods of Metal. Um, and um, it's, uh, I think he talks about it in there, um, command and control, he actually talks about in command and control, the number of times, because we, we had this policy that 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year, we wanted to have uh, these stealthy planes flying, um, Christmas day, didn't matter, all of that stuff, um, in, in case, you know, all of US was lost to nuclear, you know, destruction. If the Russians just launched everything at us, we would at least have these bombers to go just bomb, you know, like Russia. You know? <laughs> um, and so flying something that was kind of risky and not necessarily like prone to, you know, flying that much over long periods of time, you're going to make mistakes. And so bomber doors opened, uh, you know, th thankfully they didn't, you know, create the chain reaction um that happens in the film uh but could have possibly happened mm -hmm. um i actually went to the coordinates in north carolina uh over the summer because i'd gone to bone valley for my phosphorus obsession uh, <laughs> and then i went to the place that's about 40 minutes away from my mom uh this piece of farmland that they dropped a nuke on um and they it's a farming community uh there were farms surrounding it they have uh houses on one side and then they grow corn and wheat on the other side. And then they have this copse of trees that grows up right in the middle that this nuke is still sitting there because they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> just sitting there. Oh, so it didn't go off. It didn't explode. It, it just didn't go is... off. It's just there. So just, yeah. it's just sitting there, maybe going there. off on like, day. Ah, we'll just let, we'll just let people just, we'll just grow trees around it. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's the most surreal thing. Cause like, you know, when I went there, you know, uh, it had been plowed in, in preparation for planting. And so there's not really all that much there. I, I kind of actually want to go back. Um, but you have within this like large landscape of, of farmland, this copse of trees that otherwise shouldn't be there, except for there's a nuke underneath it. <laughs> That's so American that we were like, ah, eh, just fuck it, just keep growing. Just ignore it and put a little fence around it. Don't touch it, we'll be fine. Yeah, totally. So oh, that is God. so interesting. Well, and to think of, and it, I don't know if you've seen these great <laughs> graphs as well, where it, it has a it shows like a scale of like the Trinity test, then the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, mm -hmm. and it shows the yeah. mushroom cloud, and then it shows the biggest bomb in the world, which I think at the time was the Russian Tsar Bomba, and the yeah. the how much bigger it got. So if you think it's horrible for one Trinity sized explosion, the Tsar Bomba does that like it's like 
like a thousand times bigger for one bomb. The amount of destruction yeah. we have figured out how to make is horrifying. And so I think mm -hmm. that that concept of like, it didn't matter if we lit the atmosphere on problem or uh, if it didn't matter if we lit the atmosphere on fire, we still ended the world. Like we still created this chain reaction of decision-making that leads to just unexploded nukes in the middle of a, uh, wherever you were and the Sarbamba existing. It's this runaway, uh, this runaway thing that I don't know how you reconcile. Yeah, and I feel like for me, it's like it, it was, and I and I heard Christopher Nolan sort of saying this in an interview, which is like that he didn't necessarily particularly um, want those final moments of the film to be interpreted exactly how he meant it, for it to be interpreted. He wanted everyone to kind of walk away from the theater like with their own feeling of like what is that chain reaction? Like what what can we yeah. not turn back from? And so my mm. my feeling. Like and and the thing that I was just struck with and that like le literally left me like like paralyzed in my seat for like five minutes was that for me that chain reaction is like everything that like that has sort of come out of the early 1900s like all of the decisions that were made during this time of you know heightened nationalism heightened like uh j just like the the beginning of physics the beginning of like this the the most important years in science all of the decisions that were made that have led to this incredibly globalized and fragile world that we live in like i, I feel like it's like every decision that was that was made during those times like no matter who the scientist was it's like it has led to this place where you know like you can directly link the eutrophication of the world to the decision to make nitrogen fertilizers like and mm -hmm. the expansion of that like what has that meant the the expansion of nitrogen fertilizers has just allowed our our population to explode it's you know it allowed for us to figure out new ways of finding fuels and to fuel this global machine of cargo ships and bilge dumping and consumerism and all of this stuff that i think just like it's gotten so out of hand and like it's this it's this chain reaction that mm. we don't know how to put that genie back in the bottle but it's like 50 genies that we that we exp that we let out and released at a similar time or if we All... think about the the sorry the chain reaction of of social media and the algorithms yeah. you know once you have millions of jobs worldwide dependent upon ai based social media you have no other choice but to win that arms race you can't take that out of the mm -hmm. economy it's taken root yeah i cut you off sorry it's, well it's just yeah but it, but I think you're making a good point, which is that it's like all of these things are entangled, like all of these things like are like entangled, but um, essentially are going to lead towards like the collapse of civilization, the collapse of everything that we know. And, you know, I just think like all of these decisions also were made with like perfectly rational intentions, right? Like every single one, it's like we have a problem to solve. Like you said, like we're solving an issue that needs to be resolved, but it leads to these unintended consequences down the road that I think we're completely incapable of, of dealing with. And recently I've been reading a lot of books specifically from like the early 1900s, but also uh, the, the 19th century. Um, and just recognizing that it's like what we're saying now like isn't new like it's not right. unique at all like the, the fact that people have been saying the exact same things that we're saying for over a hundred years that to me is like like it like makes me feel like shook like i'm i'm like fuck. <laughs> like if there's been so many people that have been warning like like trying to raise the alarm on so many of these things and nothing has gotten through i mean i i don't, I don't know how to explain that um 
uh, other than once these things are entangled and once we literally can't live without them. I mean, I think about like using these computers and it's like, I can't, I like, I, I can't do, do life without my, my computer. I'm not capable. I don't, I don't, I don't have land. I can't like subsist off of a piece of land right now. And like, go hunting for my food you know it's like we created the conditions to be reliant on the system that is the chain reaction that is going right. to lead to our destruction and like yeah and that's yeah and that's the that's the luddite point of view right mm -hmm. so uh in order to enclose people within a space you have to take away all authority for them to be able to feed themselves to educate themselves to live outside of that industrial and factory model system um you have to enclose them you have to take all of that stuff away mm -hmm. um and so when you're, you're reading the invention of capitalism they, they actually talk about it explicitly um you know as it as a you know you have to force people off of the land mm -hmm. um you know and you have to put them into a place where they're dependent upon that economy for for everything mm -hmm. um and that's that's happened quinn talks about it he said you know that moment when uh, he's, the general was talking about North, nuking North Korea back to the Stone Age, and he was trying to make that point to the girl, like um, that putting some people back. We, we would be incompetent to be able to live yeah. Right? Yeah. in this time that is considered primitive. We would be absolutely incompetent, um, mm -hmm. and plus, we totally terraform the planet. Like none of us would be able to survive anyway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so. Uh, shoot there was a point that i wanted to make uh continue continue Sorry. well i think this concept of the enclosure of the commons is is so important and that was such a big part of the dialogue by the elites at the time of the luddites it, it's a tactic that was very well known by those in power that you enclose people you know we've talked mm -hmm. a little bit about how before England really colonized the world. They perfected the methods at home. There was England before and right after the Norman invasion was still largely a population of self-sufficient people living off the land. The, the interesting part about the Luddites was that this there's something called the Luddite Triangle, and the Luddite Triangle is also could be called the Robin Hood Triangle. So Robin, mm -hmm. the whole story behind Robin Hood was an actual story that happened, um, but it was more like most likely two people, and it didn't really have anything to do with stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. What it was at the time is that England still had these forests, these huge, huge, incredible forests, and there was a whole community of people who were the the foresters, people who lived off of the forest. The the wood was their fire. They made their houses they sustained themselves in a very sustainable culture within these incredible forests. And what happened was the monarchy at the time wanted to make a wool industry, not like support local industry of wool, because wool was already a thing, but they wanted like an industrial scale export model for wool. So they cut down all these forests and they enclosed that commons and turned it into an industrialized, privatized wool industry so that the monarchy could export and make a bunch of money. And so that's where the story of Robin Hood comes from. These woodsmen declaring nothing to do with wool, but declaring like you've enclosed upon us our way of living, uh, of living. You've taken our freedom away. You've taken away our sustenance away. And so that model was then taken from Robin Hood. And then it was put upon the Luddites because any commons that were left during this industrial revolution were also privatized as part of the industrial re revolution in England to make sure that you that people didn't have an option, that they had to go to the factories. Because it was at the, if you didn't, it was like, okay, well, you took away our ability to make money by being weavers. Well, I guess we'll just go back to living off the land, but that's not available anymore. You have to work in the factory. Yeah. And that was forced upon many people and communities throughout England before 
it was then perfected and, and put out into the world, but you have to enclose people, you're right. And I think that is such an important thing to look at um, in the modern world, which people haven't been enclosed upon. And um, uh, if we can even stop the, the final days of the enclosure movement. Well, and I, and I think this is maybe why the the idea of a nuclear chain reaction blowing up the igniting the atmosphere like it is what what it what it essentially shows us or symbolizes is that like there is no escape from this from this particular thing like there's no there's no escape from it and i think that that's sort of the 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 situation that we're in today where you know like during the time of the luddites it's like there were lands still around that hadn't been enclosed upon there were still people and communities that hadn't yet had this experience but today that's not the case i like i would argue that today like there's you know maybe a 0.001% of the population that hasn't been enclosed upon and they're on their way to being enclosed like mm -hmm. it's it's the the mission and the project is almost complete and so now that's why they have to go towards the hinterlands of our minds and colonize our minds and and i would say that probably inserting people into a factory system where you are reliant on some sort of corporate owner um for wages in order to live was like the first step in the enclosure of also the your mind and the way that you think the way that you understand and articulate and move through the world mm -hmm. um but you know the, the thing when we're all enclosed in this situation now it's like and increasingly AI is going to enclose our minds. It's going to uh, try to control every aspect of humanity. Like the, the, the people who are wielding these tools are like, you know, they're, they're playing with, with nuclear arms, really. Like it's, it's the same sort of thing where it's like no one is going to be free from that. Like no, we're all going to be taken down. And it's, it's yeah, I mean, it, it is mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, and you know, like when I look at it, uh, the the point I was trying to make before is that you you said something that the like these were uh, perhaps people trying to make rational decisions, um, but the more you learn about them, the more you realize these people are fucking nuts. Yeah, they think <laughs> right? they're rational. <laughs> they think they're rational, and you know, I think that that sort of quintessential moment. It's like the, one of the shortest parts of the Nolan film uh, that you get into is when he actually meets Truman. So now you have mm. this guy who's considered a, a 20th century genius, you know, and he's like, "Get this pussy out of here!" Yeah, this yeah. <laughs> crab baby out of here. Yeah, and apparently, yeah. he actually and, said that too. Yeah, and you just look at it, and you're just like, it, it, it this this whatever this mechanism is this like amorphous entity the the irony of like the the nuclear age created the darpa which then created uh, a system of informational computers that could be that could share information across huge boundaries so that they you can nuke your enemy at any moment regardless of whether or not communication above ground has sort of happened you create the internet and everybody's like oh this is an inherent good like it's it's a direct line between this like system of control mechanisms for dominance mm -hmm. um and so you do have that period of time that, that sort of douglas rushkoff period of time where you you do feel like this is a new frontier for for information and you know i'm young enough to sort of like remember old enough to remember sorry old enough to remember the promise of what the internet was supposed to do right uh the information age where you can in essence sort of sit in front of this thing and just gather all of the information that you could possibly like like you know um 
like Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. He's just absorbing, the, the Martian absorbing all of the information that is the human experience of the world. Um, and immediately, nearly immediately, they took all of that stuff um, and shuttled us into what we're dealing with nowadays, right? Um, you know, total sort of mental, uh, the mental gymnastics you have to do in order to like, to live within this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the constant sort of free ranging consumerism that is the internet, um, the, the new fad, the cryptocurrency, the, the selling of online cryptocurrency real estate, right? <laughs> oh, you could buy land on the <laughs> <laughs> in the metaverse. Yeah. And so like, yeah, yeah, in the metaverse, right? And you could put up your artwork that you bought in the metaverse and you could do all these things. Um, the, the, you know, it just became this, um, this thing that I, I keep on going back to O. Henry, uh, who was in Ohio kind of watching the birth of um, the radio and the telephone. And he keeps on he keeps on saying no. Now the farmer in the Midwest now has to have in his ear all the time the Wall Street broker, the mm -hmm. banker, the mm -hmm. politician. You know, it's like this constant cacophony of like stuff that doesn't allow you to even have peace or to think because you're going through this yeah. whole process. Um, this you know, this chain reaction, this nuclear chain reaction of all of these different things, um, and yeah. then you start to realize how much of this panopticon has created the sort of uh, the panopticon was like an 18th century uh, prison system um, created where every single person was in their own cell. Uh, and you had this tower in the middle that was an observer of all the things that you weren't allowed to do or, you know, mm. um, would you were constantly observed, but you wouldn't know that you were observed because the actual tower itself was blacked out. Um, you know, and so it's the omnipresent God who is always there, who's concerned with all of your thoughts and feelings, uh, who's concerned about your, you know, the internal dialogue that you have, right? That's what mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos wants. He, he wants to know what you're thinking when you're not even thinking. He wants to know what you're dreaming about. He wants to like, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, well, well, do you mind if I say something? Yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, 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 the sort of also, like, in a way, brings me back to Barbie because it's like when you ask, like, okay, why? So, what is it all for? Like, why would we create this panopticon? Why would we create this this system as it, as it is, where clearly, like, human beings struggle within this system? We created a civilization that we actually don't do well in. But then it always comes back to it, it's like, like, because people can use that, can leverage the data around what you think, who you are, how you perceive the world and make money off of it. Like it, it is unfortunately like that cynical in a way where it's like, you know, mm -hmm. I, that that um, that piece that I read recently that was um, talking about uh, commercially uh, commercially available information, which is like mm -hmm. all of the data that like my Fitbit is tracking um, my cell phone, all of my Internet search history, my emails, my texts everything even if we if we had like a smart home like all of that information is being funneled into data banks and the government can purchase it if it wants to like there's not legislation yeah. to prevent that from happening and so like you know it's it but but when what it comes down to is that it's like people can make money off of it and so mm -hmm. I, like obviously there's more to it than that but it's like when you think about like so much of what what is all of this for like there's this financial component to it and it's just mm. completely like defies 
all sensibilities. Yeah, well, and this this takes me back to what we were saying earlier about how you know technologies only reinforce what's already present in the culture. So of course the internet, which could have been many things became what it is today. And I also remember, I mean, in elementary school, I had a Google class for a whole like semester. It was Google, how to use Google. And that was when Google was raw, right? Like, and there was this beautiful moment in middle school and high school. And I tell Mary this all the time. I'm like, the internet at that point in my life was a godsend. As some introvert, artsy kid who was fascinated by a lot of things, you could get on the internet and you could find anything you wanted. And it was liberating. But then as I got into college and in the past decade, it's become like a curse on my life. And it's been this thing that I was so grateful to have that I hate having now because it's slow. it, there, it was the Wild West for a while. It was this new technology that people were using to try to tell different cultural narratives and then it all got funneled and squished down into what it is now. And I wanna, I think the important thing to think about the internet right now is the algorithms that run it. You know, this first wave of AI algorithms was trying to maximize engagement. It was just trying to get you to look at it for as long as possible. And now this this second wave is, is gonna maximize intimacy. It's, it's gonna try to feign like it understands you like nobody else does to colonize those hinterlands of your mind, to get the last bits of juicy uh, economy out of you, you know? And so I think we have to see it uh, reinforcing those th these cultural narratives, you know? And I think maybe that goes to Barbie as well, how Barbie has somehow been twisted and morphed to feign as some feminist icon while I think Mattel made a billion dollars off of the film alone, let alone the Barbie sells itself and the amount of products and shit made. And so while everybody is strangely patting themselves on the back for this toy that is liberating women, it's making some old white dudes fuck tons of money. Like it's a, it's a bit, it's a, it's an, it's an insane joke. And I don't know where I'm yeah. going with that, but I think to draw back to this Barbie conversation, I mean, what else about that? Cause I think Marin's the only person who's seen it. What about <laughs> Barbie that you walk away with that kind of is in relation to all that we're talking about now. Well, the the thing that comes to mind, and I tried to talk about this a bit in my piece, is that there was something about the Barbie movie that aimed to exonerate Mattel and to the, any of the problems, anything that's problematic about Mattel, about Barbie as an image, um, about like consumerism around toys, like consumerism around products, it. To me, that's that's the 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 what I felt was that this movie was trying to give people permission to basically continue business as usual because of the fact that it had this sort of like pseudo depth to it, um, yeah. and you know, like and it and it it's it's unfalsifiable, right? Like it's it's like what you had said about your friend uh, taking his daughter and feeling like there was some troubling messages in that film but he like because of the way that the film is presented he cannot refute it he he can't complain about it he can't have an issue with it and so that's why it's like i felt like you know somewhat responsible as like a woman who you know who's who's not just gonna have the ben shapiro take of like like down with feminism like it's like from from, from my point of view it's not even that it's like the feminist message is like the the most problematic part of it um, I I don't like the way that the feminism is is represented. I don't like the sort of feminism that just pits women against men. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's going to lead to the sort of society that many people think that it will lead to. I think it actually just leads to a society of men feeling dislocated and emasculated. And uh, you know, I, I I actually like like men, and I think men <laughs> deserve a seat at the table. And so, 
I, I felt res- like I felt a sense of responsibility to like somewhat call that out. But um, and I could say a lot more about that if we want to go into that territory. But uh, for me, it's more just like I I don't like being bullshitted. Like I don't like when I when I can tell that. Mm-hmm there is this message that's being promoted, but it's really like for, to to bring about this like commercial message. And I just don't know if people have, um, if people have that kind of radar like because yeah. it's because it's the air we breathe right like commercialism is yeah. so part and parcel that's why no that's why people wouldn't consider you know that it may be like really offensive and fucked up to japanese people for you to wear a shirt that has barbie on it with an atomic bomb and like right. y- y- you know and, it, and it's just being it's just this fad it's 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 not even yeah. that it's necessarily like trying to make a statement about anything it's like it's just yeah. because of a fad yeah. do you do you remember the uh black lives matter pepsi ad yeah Exactly. Yeah, that's like, that's what it felt like to me. Yes. So I I I've, I, uh, I, I try to describe it because I, I I do think it was a uh, a cultural moment uh, that I think a lot of people either bypassed or it just didn't reach on the radar. Um, but you had a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening at the time, and so Pepsi had decided they were going to do this commercial. And so the commercial <laughs> is like this beautiful town, uh, the sun is shining. Uh, and there's like everybody's like kind of dancing, protesting, and they've got their colorful signs and they're doing all this stuff and it's choreographed and they're just walking down the street. Um, and uh, one of the Kardashians is like doing a photo shoot and she hears what's going on. Uh, and she, you know, she kind of like walks to the entrance of, of the building that she's in and she takes the script and she like kind of throws it at her intern who is like this, you know, girls kind of like fixing her makeup and everything like that. And I think the woman was black, right? <laughs> so then you have Kardashian come out and she's like, I am joining this protest. So then she goes and they go down to the markets, they go down to the square and in the square is this line of like Gestapo anti-riot gear soldiers who are all standing there in lockstep and the protest meets them and they're like 15 feet away from each other. Uh, and it's like, this, dum, dum, you know, yeah. what's going to happen next? Tear <laughs> right? gas. Blah, blah, blah. And she just walks up and like opens up a can of Pepsi and hands it to the police officer, uh, you know, and you're just like, what the fuck am I just watching? Yeah. <laughs> it's so dystopian. You know? And that's, yeah. And that's like the sense that I got going into it. Uh, the sense that I got going into what Barbie was going to do, because mm-hmm. there's just no way for that corporate entity but what the corporate entity can do is like, it's like the blob, right? It can't produce anything, but it can just subsume it all. It could take the language of protest, take the language of activism. It could take every single one of those, hand that to an ad agency on Madison Avenue. That ad agency is gonna build this entire edifice of a worldview around the, this product. Um, and no, you know, and if you've been raised in this, if you've been narcotized by commercials or grown up with cartoons that are 30 minute commercials for say Transformers or Masters of the Universe, another Mattel that they're gonna try to remake, um, you know, if you've been raised within this, you're not gonna recognize it's a 90 minute commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the end result of that is you've absorbed all of this other Mattel stuff and maybe you felt like your your feelings about a certain issue are validated because now they're in some sort of form of popular culture, right. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's one thing, if you don't mind me saying don't. this, um, 
you know, and, and I and I sort of wish that I have had thought this out a little bit more when I wrote my piece, but um, you know, one of the things that I wrote in it is that uh, Neil Postman, who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, he talked about how, um, in his mind, when he wrote it in 1985, what he thought was going to be dangerous was like the 60 minutes of the world, like the, the things that are like educational amusement, inter uh, educational entertainment is what he thought was was dangerous. And I kind of wrote like, you know, but then it like more like 15 years later, Morris Berman would say, like would talk about like the way that junk is also impacts us and it pushes us in a different direction. Um, but one of the things that I think is is interesting about Barbie is that it's kind of both. It's 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 masquerading itself as this like crash course in feminism and this crash course in like what it means to be a woman and like granted a very very narrow view of what it like it's like a western like all of the problems of being a western woman basically um so it's it's you know people people are saying that it's genius because it's educational in this sense quote unquote educational in this sense but it's like i do think that there's this sort of like hybridization of like it's it's actually just junk entertainment to push a commercial message that has the veneer of it being mm -hmm. educational or progressive or having activism within it when it's like just mm -hmm. it just doesn't it's it's, it's it, you see the movie and you see it's it's sloganistic it's jargonistic and it it doesn't actually it, it pushes a lot of like really disturbing things in my view but um but yeah at, at the end of the day it's all about mattel it, like i just yeah. kept thinking i was right. like mattel fucking won mattel won well and it, it, it just seems like we've all been so conditioned the the reason because for me it's confounding why nobody has bullshit radar why does nobody have like an anaphylactic shock to seeing that movie like i would like i could like I, I i couldn't go see that that's like the most demonic thing to exist but i'm like why does nobody else have remotely right. that reaction but you could, know, you could you buy tickets to oppenheimer and then just go to barbie or like oh that'd be good even... that's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea yeah i mean i'd like to see it just to see it or i stream it for free yeah. somewhere but it's for me it's where, where is that like allergic reaction that nobody else seems to have but it's we've been so conditioned since day one to accept the messaging with the bullshit and to look past mm -hmm. the bullshit and yeah. you send this hilarious article about oppenheimer core right like there's this right. new trend about barbie but we've been so conditioned for the consumerist mindset that even though the oppenheimer was in no way trying to start a fashion statement people were looking to find the new fashion movement out of robert j oppenheimer and there's like fashion shows done on like the right. the essence of his style suit. yeah, yeah the hat and all this bullshit we're so conditioned to see the world through that lens and we've been trained and so i don't know how we begin to get that like a it's like you've been putting a little bit of arsenic in people's water since they were a kid <laughs> to the point you can put a lot of arsenic in their water and it doesn't really kill them you know and it's like right. how do you make people allergic to the bullshit again i yeah. it's a, such a hard task yeah. and you know the, the other story that comes to mind was um the me too movement so all the protests that were happening around that of uh, the girl who showed up in front of the bowl on wall street right so the the you know the the bronze girl who's holding her hips who's standing in front of the bull you you know people were like oh who put this up there was this an active activism no it was state street capital it's like one of the biggest hedge funds in the world right commissioned it put it in front of their 
you know, became iconic. People are taking selfies with it and everything like that. And you just don't, you don't realize that they, and you know, they've quick, very quickly pointed out there's no women on their board. There's no, <laughs> no women, uh, you know, in uh, executive management at their, you know, and so it was just a marketing play, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's that's where I feel some sort of continuity with a lot of the conservative pushback against um, a, a lot of the the marketing uh, to this consumer culture that can turn any type of activism into, uh, you know, a new product to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, you know, people are trying to signal to the outside world how they are. So they buy the product that makes them look like they're doing this thing. And, you know, everybody's just sort of grabbing onto it. It's like a parasitical relationship and all these things. And we just cycle from, we just go from cycle to cycle on that stuff. Um, and because it was such a runaway success, um, we'll just get one after another of this going forward for the next next decade or so. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know they call it the Mattel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God! <laughs> and, you know, and the, you know, and, and it makes me go back to what the comics originally were, right? So comics were very subversive. You get Superman was too Jewish. Uh, you know, uh, immigrant kids in Ohio came up with this idea of uh, this character um, who then became the icon of, of Americana, right? So Superman comes out, right? Two Jewish kids create this. Um, you know, you get this sort of origin story that of uh, this doll, right? Um, an icon, a mythology, uh, you know, our Greek god, you know, this man who can do anything, this sort of alien trying to understand uh, our universe, but is born and raised in, you know, um, Indiana and then lives in the big city and, you know, tries to understand the cultural mores at the time. Um, you know, you, you want to forget what the story was. These were Jewish kids who kind of came over who in Ohio were probably bullied and all of that stuff. Their, their father, one of them, their father was, uh, I think he was a tailor. Um, they lived above the store. Um, and he heard somebody break in one night. He went down and, you know, his father was shot. His father died. Jesus Christ. And so Superman hates guns. So, you know, you have my friend Anthony who did this painting, this incredibly wonderful painting of, uh, you know, uh, Superman in one of the original editions goes down uh, to the wharf and he takes all of these illegal guns that are coming and he crushes them. He's like, I hate guns, you know? And it's like the the disconnect that you have between these you know uh the this you know this worldview the way that we want to envision what these characters are uh and their origin stories we can't have those people exist within our americana sort of worldview mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's almost like if you can you know call the the force forces at play for the hell of it like it's like its own kind of entity and it's what the entity is really good at is identifying sources of power and sources of narrative within the culture that it doesn't quite yet have control over but have disproportionate free power and it's really good at latching onto those things and slowly distorting the definition and then the meaning of words and this is something we've talked a lot about with you and between us is our frustration currently with the regenerative ag movement even just a few few short years ago to us it meant something a lot different than what it's becoming and i'm not saying anything like it's it's unimportant or whatever like that but there's you start to see language changing you start to see the entities in which it, 
something like Regen Ag was supposed to transform and work against become part of that model. You see Superman becoming part of the thing it was supposed to speak against. You see things transform in ways that are really... Um, uh, really sad and really disheartening. And I think it's important that we all have our own definitions for things and that we hold definitions within us. You know, for me, the, the, the art of filmmaking has a very speci specific definition that gives it a lot of meaning. And I have to quite often distance myself from the world of movies, no matter how much I love movies, because they've become for many, many years, something that I don't think that's what cinema is or could be. And, um, yeah, and I think it's important that we all understand our definition of certain things. I mean, by God, if anybody has a definition or a meaning in a relation to Barbie that they feel is truly healthy or helpful or had their original essence of it, by all means, keep it. But don't let it become this weird Mattel version of the thing. But that's the thing. I think that's my point is that it's like it's not possible to separate those things. Yeah. Like because any 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 moments of truth in barbie and 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 i will be fair and like there there is like this this you you probably have heard women talking about it this monologue that america ferrera gives where she talks about the sort of duality of being a, a woman how it's like you can't be too pretty but you can't be too ugly you can't be too you have to be thin but you can't want to be thin like like all of these things which mm -hmm. i mean granted like there are worse problems in the world and i will say that as a woman who has gone through all of the the, the hard things that women go through like in america like uh, not, obviously not everything but like it's 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 hard it's hard to sit in that movie and be like yeah it's so hard to be a woman like when i'm thinking about how many privileges i have as a woman in you know like that's my sort of like more off the cuff thing but um like the, the, this this speech really really resonated with a lot of women if you can if you look online and you can see and and there is a lot of truth in it um there is a lot of truth in the the fact that there's challenges of being a woman um but what i don't think people are like what i don't think people are capable of seeing is that it's it's a commercial it's a commercial that is making you feel these things it's 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 attaching itself to these feelings that you feel about being a woman and it's validating those things and those are those are real things but then it's twisting it in this totally different direction for the purpose of selling products and so i don't think that it can be separated i think that women need to understand that this was a commercial venture period mm -hmm. and any any resonance that a woman may may have felt with the messaging of the movie like you have to take that with a grain of salt and unfortunately understand that like regardless of how true that that may have felt or how like it, it, it's all mediated by Mattel and it's all mediated by a particular cultural narrative that can help you help them sell products. But at the same time, I do think that there's a lot of these ideas that are, are honestly really corrosive. I mean, I, like there's there's a part in the, the movie where um, Barbie, so so Ken, Ken is, uh, goes into the real world with Barbie, and he discovers the patriarchy, and he's like, "Wow, like the patriarchy is so cool! I'm gonna go take this back to Barbie and B Barbie Land, and like turn Barbie Land into a patriarchy." And instantly, when he goes back, um, all of the Barbies are just brainwashed into uh, believing in the patriarchy. They start wearing all these like slutty little maid outfits and are like servicing all of the Kens, and it's like. Ken is finally like feeling what it feels like to be uh, be be on top, and 
the, so, the Andrew Tate's wet dream. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> uh, like the, the cartoon version of that, really. Right. Um, yeah. The cartoon, like, genital-less version of that. Um, right. <laughs> but, um, but then, like... Uh, Barbie comes back and she's like, oh my God, like what has happened? The, you know, the patriarchy has taken over and it's like this horrific thing. And the way that they just, they figure out that they can break the brainwashing of the Barbies is to tell them how, tell each Barbie how hard it is to be a woman. And then like the, the Barbies just come online. And so like mm -hmm. implicit in that sort of narrative is that like women will wake up from the, 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 that, that women have been brainwashed by the patriarchy and that you can wake up from the oppression by hearing these words like hearing these slogans about how hard it is to be a woman and but then what ends up happening is like because it's like okay fair enough like women should be conscious of these things they should be conscious of the ways that maybe they're being mistreated by men but then what ends up happening is that the barbies then use that power they wake up from the brainwashing and they use that to um basically try to get the Kens to war against each other, fight against each other so that they can then regain power. Mm. And so to me, it's just uh, like, it, you know, what, what does it say about wom women that like we're so easily brainwashed? Like, what does it say mm. about women that we have to manipulate men in order for us to feel because uh, because the, the Barbies like deliberately like make this plan to like manipulate all of the men into thinking that they give a shit about the men, the Kens, in order to then take over power. Like, what does it say about how how women view men that it's like we're so willing to like dehumanize men to try to gain control over them? Like, to me, I'm just like, I'm like, I, I don't understand why people think that this pendulum swinging is is a, an effective way for us to like live in the world like i i don't want to live in barbie land i don't want to live in in the patriarchy with women in charge like i, I want to live in a totally different society i want to live in a society where like all people are un understand that the way that the civilization functions hurts men and women it hurts all of us it doesn't it, it it hurts every person who is forced to feel like they're a consumer and that's all they're worth and so, but it's like Barbie doesn't address any of those things. It, it paints this dynamic between this this gender war between men and women as something very very simple. Like the women just need to be in charge. Women just need to be in charge of everything. And I and I to me it's just like a very um, it, it, it's it sounds like something that like a thirteen year old would come up with. Like oh I don't like the boys so I should be I should take I, sh I should just take over. Yeah, um, I mean it just reminds me of like the uh, the interview with Madeline Albright. Where they they sat her down and they asked her about the number of uh, like child deaths in Iraq because the oil for food program and because of the war, um, and she was like, "Well, you know, I just kind of think of it like I I don't like to talk about it all that much. I just consider it collateral damage or whatever the the term is that the, that people can use to obfuscate their role mm -hmm. um, as the Secretary of State in in you know the murder and death of." tens of thousands of people mm -hmm. right and you put a woman in charge of that and she's gonna do it the reason why she's in charge of that is because she says that mm -hmm. right the reason why colin powell is in front of the un talking about weapons of mass destruction is because he's the guy who has proven over and over again that he's just going to go with the party line mm -hmm. so they call it you know diversity and inclusion um but you, you have to perform the same narrative that everybody right. else does. And you exactly. watch what's happening in Hollywood with the strikes and everything like that, and they just realize that the people in positions of power don't fucking care about 
actors, writers, like every single aspect of the carpenter who built the Barbie set, they don't give a fuck about you. <laughs> you know? They just don't fucking care. But mm -hmm. I, I wanted to kind of like get your sense of this. Um, you know, we're, we're building these dividing lines between the consumerist culture of Barbie and the consumer and the non-consumerist like moral, uh, you know, like elements of Oppenheimer. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on this. Like, um, for me, Oppenheimer is the quintessential Americana propaganda. You know, we had to do the bad thing in order to stop the war, um, the American version of history. Um, you know, and what you see when you're reading the book, um, and, you know, I, I want to say that Nolan tried as much as possible to kind of get into that. Like his, his um, the, the female character who's the communist, um, you know, is sort of, you know, is she sexually liberal, liberated because we get to see her naked and, you know, having sex in front of the wife who he easily paints as an alcoholic, which I didn't get from the biography so far. Mm. I mean, maybe she descends into that. Um, but at the time, her inability to take care of her baby isn't mentioned as a you know, because of her constant drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the sense that you get is Oppenheimer is the king of martinis. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't necessarily like he always has a bottle of whiskey on him when he goes on vacation. He's always the guy who's like bringing the party together and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the commercialism story is like what is not shown in Oppenheimer. Right. You don't see you don't see Japanese internment camps. Right. That was happening in his back door. Mm -hmm. You know, he's working mm -hmm. on migrant labor conditions and uh, agricultural migrant labor, labor conditions. And he's also dealing with in real time uh, the fascist uh, uh, civil war that's happening in Spain. He doesn't know about Japanese determinants, you know, so that's excised from that. I, I don't know whether it's in the book or not, because mm -hmm. it is a long, long biography. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, and then the secondary element of that is you. There's not a Japanese person in the entire thing. You don't show any of the photographs. Like you, you had you had the budget to build the ramifications of that. You had the budget to show what this would actually look like. And the only thing that you showed in that uh, is your daughter's face melting. You know, like Christopher Nolan's daughter is the girl whose face melts. You know, and I don't know what to think of that imagery. What does that mean to yeah. like? So for Christopher, does that, you know, like mean that he's thought about that? I don't know, you know, but it's not a Japanese person and it's not, you know, it, the commercial aspect of that is there's a really wonderful book by um, a English professor at West Point who uh, I think the book is called um, The Good War. Um, and it is, um, she is dismantling the saving private ryan spielbergian uh you know narrative of the good soldiers who were forced into combat who never wanted to go to war uh type of mentality that we go into who like come in at the last minute and save everybody you know mm -hmm. she challenges the whole notion of that she challenges like the notion that these good american soldiers went over there and you know didn't steal enormous amounts of silver and artwork <laughs> everything they get their fucking hands on you know she goes through all of that stuff she's meticulously researched book that goes into uh the degree to which americans were a scourge upon europe as they were quote unquote trying to save it <laughs> um you know and then you go into that point in the book which is hitler surrendered journey mm -hmm. surrendered right like you know they, they were done 
And so you have to you have to go into the element of uh, the the racism that went into uh, you know because there were fire fire bombings in Dresden, right? It did burn cities to the ground. Uh, a lot of that was British uh, hatred and animosity towards Germany. Um, I think up until the war, uh, Americans were so pro-Germany. You know, that's that's where they were sending their scientists, right? That's where you got the education that you needed, the Western education that you needed in order to to uh, build, uh, you know, the entire sort of quantum dynamic world that the U.S. wanted to compete with. You sent your scientists over to Europe to study, you know, um, and yeah. so there was a love of all of those things. Um, and then you know, and the, and and I don't know if you can go through that entire film without mentioning the reason why we dropped the bomb was to prove to the communists and to the Russians that we had it. Yeah, you know. Well, like, yeah. This is a. I mean, this is a great point you're bringing up, and I think the three of us, being creatives and being artists, you know, the the, the conversation of what to say, what to include, what to exclude, how to say it, why do you say it, for what purpose, is a good conversation. And I think to add to your point. There's one t something that I learned recently, and there's a great series by, I don't know how people feel about Oliver Stone, but he did a Oliver Stone's mm -hmm. Untold History of the United States, and something he covers pretty in depth about the dropping of the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima is that after the Germans had surrendered, like the Japanese knew it was done. Like they knew they weren't going to win the war. And the Japanese were actually wanting to surrender. They, w they were in peace talks, but the yeah. Americans being who they were, they what the Americans were asking for was um, what's the term unconditional unconditional surrender. surrender. Now that's a very specific term to use for this context because the Japanese at the time had an emperor, but their emperor was God on Earth. It's literally Christ embodied for a, a you know like for like. It's it's not just an emperor. It's like they see him as a spiritual being, and so part of this unconditional surrender was giving up of their of their emperor. Yeah, like and, humiliating. And the and the Americans and he says one line in the film, which is, "I have certain intel that the Japanese will never surrender." And for me, that was the one thing I was like, if you could extrapolate somehow upon that it would at least help alleviate this one-sided American version of the thing, which I do think he was trying to subvert. I don't know how successful it was, but the fact that the Americans knew that under these terms, the Japanese would never surrender and they would keep fighting, but painted it as these irrational kamikaze fight to the bitter end Japanese who would just fight for no any no rational reason was a lie because they wanted to use the bomb. They wanted to test it. They wanted to show to the world that they had it. So they found this point to paint the Japanese in this way when they didn't want to keep fighting. And, you know, and to your other point, yeah, I think there was a moment for me when, you know, Oppenheimer's in the theater and he's watching the newsreel and you see him just kind of look down. And that was the only moment where you get to hear about the horrors. I try to put, and you've talked about this a lot too, that there's a problem with making any, especially American films that have anything to do about the military because the military kind of has some sort of say of what's included, what's not included, mm -hmm. if you want their if you want their equipment, if you want their participation. What I don't know how much of that played a factor. And I also don't know how much of it was no one trying to make creative decisions because the script was written in first person. You know, the the the, the mm -hmm. film is Oppenheimer and it's written in first person and it's trying to accomplish certain things from a certain perspective. And so I think and I don't want to be an apology. Maybe Christopher Nolan wasn't thinking about this at all, but maybe he thought that that is the best creative way to 
accomplish that was to show the reaction on somebody's face or that he felt, you know, it's not my place for this film to talk about these things that's maybe the Japanese's and a role and maybe they've already made films or maybe not. Maybe it was a total shortcoming. I personally, like you would have liked a little bit more. I, I would I would have liked some sort of creative attempt to viscerally get the audience to make sure the audience knew what had happened. And maybe he felt like that was adequate, just using his daughter uh, as the melting person or, or seeing the audience members looking down. Maybe he fell intuitively as a creative, that was enough, or maybe he... he... Or, or maybe he made the decision to do it as a first person because he knew it could obfuscate the, the, the moral dilemmas that would have to show that stuff, right? Like Absolutely. The, uh, Oppenheimer is not a first person accountant, the um, uh, American Prometheus. You know, the, the level of complexity. So the thing that I love about the book is a, is the level of complexity that you get from all of the other characters who are, in many ways, deep moral thinkers about a lot of the issues that are happening at the time. They're very aware of what had happened. They're politically engaged. He is not. Um, he kind of comes in and out of those things. Um, you know, the the question in the book is whether or not he was a card-carrying communist. Mm. Well, he, you know, there were all of these different sort of, but he was surrounded by people who were very heavily invested in that. And, you know, um, it, the the biography goes very deeply into how the, how the people who were pro-communist in America and in Europe had to deal with the Stalinist purges, right? A lot of them did not want to look at that stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's so much moral complexity in the book there are the characters that are almost caricatured in the film have deep moral belief systems that are like lined out in this and and nolan kind of chooses to ignore a lot of that stuff um in order to build this like the edifice of this guy who is sort of bounced around with a, these uh, global strategic um you know world defining uh you know things Right? I mean, that's the sense that I got. Yeah. 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 And I think, have you seen it twice or just once? Uh, I just, just the once. I, yeah. I think I, I picked up on a lot more the second time because it is a really fast paced movie with a lot of dialogue yeah. and there's so much going on. Um, you know, the moment that Jake brought up, like, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard because when you're watching a movie, you, you don't know, like, am I, am I interpreting this moment correctly? But it's like, the moment where th that are leading up to like the decisions to drop the bombs, um, to me, uh, expressed doubt in the fact that the, the intel that they had was true and showed showed the bana banality of the decision making, um, mm -hmm. in in a way that I, I felt like I was like okay yeah I can see I like I can see why like what Nolan is maybe trying to do here and so I I think that like. One thing that I think about, too, is that um, we have become very desensitized to violence in our society. And so I personally think that it was a deliberate choice by Christopher Nolan to have this omission. Like, I think it was a it was a purposeful omission. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that there, for certain people, it's not going to land and certain people aren't going to feel the gravity of it. Um, mm -hmm. But when I went into that movie, you know, it's like I went into this movie like 
knowing full well what happened in Japan, like no, no, having that historical context, like having enough historical context about what I was like witnessing to be able to understand the gravity of those moments and the gravity of him looking away. Um, and we, we sent you that video by the this like YouTube creator, like Stories of Old. I don't know if you watched it, but he kind of discusses like, you know, what could have what could have happened, like could had like it could have been impactful to be confronted with some of those some of those images um, in order to like to, to, to really confront us, but also to be able to maybe step into Oppenheimer's shoes a little bit more, because it's not like he never saw those pictures. But like, I right. do think Nolan was trying to make us see the way that like he's having to rationalize and justify what he has just what he's done, like the fact that he has blood on his hands. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do think that that could have been interesting. I um, But I do think that like I read something that was talking, and, and I like I need to get to this place in the book to be able to verify that this is true. But it's like, um, I think that the la the lack of Japanese people in the movie, it it causes me to confront the fact that it's like clearly Japanese people were not included in this decision, you know, in these decisions, mm -hmm. and they weren't included in the ramifications, just like how. You know, like there's like a moment where he talks a bit about like give the land back to the Indians, you know, like with right. this sort of callousness that you're kind of like, you don't understand what you just did to that place. Like you don't understand. <laughs> like and so I, I think that they happen so quick um, and I maybe I'm being too generous, but it's like there are like like you could read that as like he is just sort of like throwing it in to like omit it and like kind of cover his ass. But I don't know if I necessarily feel that way, like because especially comparing it to Barbie, where it's like there's this one scene where we get all of the problems that are with Barbie um, and it's a 13 year old girl who says all of these like stupid things throughout the movie, like like outlining all the problems with Barbie. And you can tell like the, the intention is to like get it out of the way <laughs> so that like they can move on with the story and no right. longer have to address it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like yeah. like I, I think I think it could be taken either way. And, and I think for me, I mean, no, I think every film has its shortcomings and, and maybe it is an ultimate failure of his. And maybe I see him through Rosie or Christopher through rose-colored glasses because I think he's one of the few people who's actually trying to make a real movie these days but I think for me the redeem if if I was disappointed the redeeming thing was the movie ends and you don't see Oppenheimer as a hero you don't see him as a villain you're kind of <laughs> annoyed with him and you I just felt like I was I was mad at him and I think he was pathetic but I also understood him and I think that's that's a big accomplishment for a film to do because history is I think that I was, I, I remember just walking so angry out of that movie um, because I was, I'm just mad at people. I was so mad at everybody involved in the decision-making that nobody had the foresight, that there was so many people involved that allowed it to happen. And, and maybe that's just my ability to see those things. But I, for me, that was the success of the film was to understand the main thing he was trying to point out with that film was, hey, like, this is how you morally destroy the fucking world and you vaporize people. And also, here's this person who was we're supposed to see as a hero, but he's actually a lot. It's a little kind of fucked up. And I think that for me was a success was to be able to kind of be mad at Oppenheimer. And there was no heroes in that story. There was no vi villains, really. It was all about the complex morality of it all. And I do, but I do see that it, there, there, there can be a moment um, to tell that Japanese like, story. Yeah, but then, like you, I grew up with all of those where it's like, 
you know, and there was somebody who tweeted something that I thought was just absolutely genius. It was like, only America can create a uh, movie where, you know, you, you like bomb, you know, the hell out of people essentially committed genocide and then make a movie 20 years later about how bad it made the soldiers feel to do it, mm, you yeah. know? And I, and I think that's kind of like the way that I feel about it. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the Joker Batman really goes into some moral complexity that is like you have an agent of chaos who only wants to create an agent of chaos who sees the world in the way that he is. Uh, and so when he gives like the people of choice, you know, between the citizens of New York and the prisoners as to only one can survive. Uh, and then you get the prisoner who just chucks out the device from the window and says, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the choice, the hard choice that you couldn't make. I do feel generally that he knows, like, he can think that way. Mm. And if he's read the book, he is thinking that way because the book goes into all moral complexities of this and the mm-hmm. failings of Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. So um, my sense was that you have this person who, makes these billion dollar films who maybe for the first time in Hollywood in a long time is able to create a story that isn't Hollywood-esque. And I just don't know whether or not I feel like he really like took the responsibility of that uh, well. Mm. You know, and so like prior to that, we, we've, because we're, we don't study a lot of the history of it, we, we have the firebombing of Tokyo that killed hundreds of thousands of people, right? We, we knew that we could take what was in essence a... Um, uh, Trevanian described it. It's a, uh, a perfect, a city of perfect tinder, hmm. uh, and light it on fire and see what happens. And you know, I mean, the way that Trevanian describes it, it's like people just going into the river and just burning alive and drowning, you know, in all of the smoke. So they knew the capability, and I'm reasonably certain it's probably phosphorus bombs that did it, right? Mm. Right, uh, something that just could not be put out. Elemental phosphorus on perfect tinder, um, and so they knew they could destroy a city if they wanted to. They had to show off this thing, mm-hmm. you know. And it just doesn't ever really feel like that in the film, you know. Yeah. It never feels like they were, you know. And and you know, Trevanian will do that where he's like, yeah, you know, he's like, oh yeah, we we're the ones who wear the white hats, quote unquote. You know, so we're the ones who make the right moral decisions. And then you learn so much about U.S. history and you're like, these decisions are made by sociopaths. Yeah. 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 And, and there, there is a moment like it, it's just so hard because it's like, you know, it's also it, it's also challenging with like because because the movie is three hours long and so it's like you know should it have been four hours long should it have been longer to incorporate more of these sort of things and like flesh them out even more um you know that that could be a question but you know like there are moments where you know there's a moment where oppenheimer says like people won't understand what this weapon is until we use it and they talk about how you know they have to make sure that the bomb goes off, and so like they, they can't they they can't uh, call like t- tell the Japanese to evacuate because they have to make sure that this bomb goes off and that it's this this thing this spectacle so that everybody can see like how powerful America is and you know it it makes me think too of like you know like Fritz Haber in the trenches like uh, with, with the the chlorine gas and like mm-hmm. just you know like the the way that people make decisions um and and try to put this like moral veneer on it where it's like if if we have to if we have to prove that the united states is going to win this war and that the u.s is the biggest baddest motherfucker around like what will we do to prove that and you know i think like you know 
obliterating a landscape with chlorine gas is sort of another one of those things where it's like, you know, that you get into this place where it's like you're dealing with like the psychology of like these egos and this this uh, this drive towards um, towards mastery. And uh, like there's there's so many elements to it. And I think Mm -hmm. like for me, Oppenheimer was very, very effective because it, it tapped into those those things that I think about. But like there's only so much a movie can do. And so but I, I but I think that still those critiques are very valid. And I actually would really hope that there would be more movies made that would maybe explore some of these other things as well. Uh, yeah. You know, like the Marshall, what happened in the Marshall Islands, like what happened to like all of the communities around Los Alamos that were impacted forever yeah. because of nuclear radiation. Like, so it's like, it, there's part of it where it's like, there's only so much that Nolan could put into a three hour, th- th- into this movie to like make his case. And so like, I have to assume that he really made deliberate choices for a deliberate conceit. Um, but I can also understand perfectly well that like other people aren't going to necessarily feel that it was successful in the way that I was just because of like my particular framing of it you know like that it is it is subjective in that sense well and also this could be a good moment too for people who do myself included want more out of this particular thing getting truly understanding what it was like to be on the Japanese side of this and what it was like to be a Japanese person at this time in the war I think there's been a lot of really good Japanese filmmakers who have made great films about this topic and maybe that's it's just like an invitation for like more world cinema with people mm-hmm. i i know yeah. i want to i know there's a lot of really great classic japanese filmmakers who who made their own uh films about this i mean it's such a big part of japanese psychology that's where godzilla comes from that's where this this weird culture about around nuclear energy and power arises in japan is yeah, because one of the first manga books was about that yeah. exactly yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. In the 1970s yeah. yeah. And yeah. and that's one thing that I think, you know, could is a benefit of like sort of the streaming culture is like there's so much there's there's so much more access mm-hmm. for like really good filmmakers, international filmmakers to actually have their their like things yeah. seen by like all audiences around the world. And so but, like But all this thing as a, as a temporary as a, a temporary side, did you notice that um did you you read Wizard and Prophet, right? Mhm. Uh, the Vannevar Bush uh, is on the original commission to build a nuke who he ends up in uh, Wizard and the Prophet and uh, James Conant who is um, vilified very heavily by John Taylor Gatto and his critique of education is also on the council and you just realize like how small this world it's is all <laughs> tied in. you're saying that in, in the council it, like presented in the movie yeah, or they, in the, the biography uh, in in the biography, the uh, the um, uh, the original commission that was put together uh, that was based off of the memo that was sent by Einstein saying uh, the the way that um, quantum mechanics is now working, uh, the splitting of the atom could create a, a massive bomb of like of massive destruction it was mostly ignored for about two years, um, but uh, and there was another commission that was uh, German scientists in Britain who then uh, petitioned Roosevelt to take it more seriously. And then when he finally put the commission together to build this, you get James Comment and, and mm. Conant and you get Vannevar Bush together. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just like, it's too much of a small world. It's like these yeah. world. Makers, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's but, but that's what I mean. Kind of nerd out. I love <laughs> that. See, it, I, I'm bad. At, like I'm still. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm gonna become intelligent enough to be able to hold on to more names. But like sometimes mm. when I'm reading, it's like the names sort of like slip me by unless I it, it comes up often enough that I'm like I'm gonna actually like figure out who that person is. That's really interesting, and it kind of also confirms what I was sort of saying before, which is that like 
at the beginning of the the 20th century there was like a it, it wasn't that many people who have like ultimately led to this chain reaction that changed the world and one of the things that i was going to say when we were talking er earlier is like you know when we think about like where our civilization has gone um you know you can't also separate um psychology from those that that, that group of yeah. people you can't separate yeah, Conan, educators. Conan was in, yeah i think he was the um forgive me if i'm wrong he was the head of psychology yeah. Uh, and then became the dean over at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's like there was also this, um, you, you know, and and th th that means that there's obviously so many things that you can d dig into and try to understand to try to understand the world that we live in. But like I, I started reading um, Otto Rank's book, Bio Beyond Psychology. Um, and he had become kind of a, a bit of a dissident of that sort of core group of uh, psychoanalysts in the early uh, 20th century. Um, but one of the things that he says at the beginning of the book is because uh, th this was a, a book that was published posthumously because it was his final book and it was the only book he ever wrote in English. Um, mm. But one of the things that he talks about is like part of the reason why um, so many of the psychologists like ultimately got it wrong at the, 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 this group of psychologists is that they were treating neurosis in people, not neurosis, neurosis in the civilization. Right, and, right, and he right. writes how like that was sort of like the the shameful realization that Freud had when he before he died yeah. was like, oh, wait, I've been like assuming that humans are like he, he, the way that humans are reacting to the civilization is the problem, whereas it's actually the civilization itself that's the problem. And um, yeah. and I haven't gotten like too much into more detail into that book. Um, I started reading it because uh, Ernest Becker, who wrote Denial of Death and like the birth and death and meaning and all of these things, uh, he really like is like uplifting auto rank because he's like he's like nobody knows who this psychologist is. Yeah. And yeah, so and he was he was absolutely integral to uh, I think uh, civilization and its discontents uh, was probably cribbed off of Otto's work. Mm -hmm. um, but Carl Jung and uh, both Freud essentially kind of took a lot from this one guy mm -hmm. who was an anarchist socialist who didn't necessarily fit into the mold of, you know, these uh, these upper echelon like educated people who are kind of teaching a lot of the psychology at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, his main argument. I, the only book I could ever find it on it is is really weird and doesn't really get into his biography. So I can I, like I couldn't grab anything from it. Mm -hmm. But he's an interesting character. Yeah, yeah. And I just and, and you know then when you think about also like uh, the the underground history of Amer American education and also the the education system that sort of was built around this time as well that. Uh, it was another mechanism for like scaffolding this worldview and so it's like you, you know like the, the the salt is from all angles and like and you see certain people like fixating on certain aspects and being like okay this this is like a way that we're that that the enclosure is trying to like happen on my mind right. um right. but really i think the assault comes from all sides and yeah you know so it's yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And to me. you know, I started reading a lot of the primary sources in um, uh, Gatto's books and stuff like that. And you you do have to like really really look into them to find the passages that he highlights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, you don't get this like really sort of nefarious, um, you know, like open like in your face uh, methodology that that Gatto really wants to kind of like. Uh, coexist with his own narrative mm -hmm. um and i don't i haven't gone into all of it so i'm still trying to find a lot of that stuff yeah. um and, and this is a digression but i think it's kind of a little bit important um 
uh, you know, we were talking about regenerative agriculture. Um, there's now this sort of like weird intermingling of like the Kelly Brogan's uh, spiritualists mm. and spirituality, um, Aubrey Marcus, like, you know, open rave, like sexual escapade, like weirdness, Kelly Brogan, trad wife, like mm. this whole purity culture that's now coming into it that is slowly starting to meld itself into regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in in some in some ways, right? So I, I don't think the farmers will actually accept a lot of it, but it's another sort of amorphous blob that's trying to subsume all of the stuff that's sitting around it. Mm -hmm. um, and so Kelly has this new thing that came out. It's like a, a hundred hours of COVID. The end of COVID is the name of it. And mm. I'm almost reluctant to even talk about it just because it's so fucking moronic. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but it, like, I, I was interested enough to go and I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to spend some time in this headspace. Um, and it's all of these ideologues and weird musicians who then became researchers and stuff like that. But they have this one passage in there about Gatto, who was a guy who read a lot of his stuff and he's talking about the history of education. Mm. Um, and it's it's a weird like cognitive um, like disgust that I have to have this guy talk about it in a way that is very like us. Uh, um, uh, he's taking all of the primary research and stuff that I have done and utilizing it as a, a force for, you know, for power, mm. um, you know, and he's very much into homeschooling, which I consider to be in, in some ways like, you, you know, the, the term nowadays is typically called indoctrination. And when you look up the history of indoctrination, it's like it's an education into uh, a doctrinal uh, sort of religious attitude, right? So that's where it kind of comes from. Um, you indoctrinate people by bringing them into this very sort of like Christian religious world. Um, and they keep on talking about it as if the stuff that they do isn't indoctrination, mm. right? Their education isn't indoctrination. And I'm like, you can't, you know, like it's just the nature of the beast. Every time you as a person commune with another person about your ideas you know, then you're, there is a, an exchange of information that can be considered indoctrination based on the feeling that you have of, of whether or not that feels like it's a conversation or it's an imposition upon your worldview. Right. You know, it reminds yeah. me of the line. And it's really hard for yeah. me. You know? all, all art is propaganda, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that it also sort of highlights this, you know, inextricable problem that like no matter where I look, I just can't help mm -hmm. but to see it. And I, and, and, and again, it's not an original idea. Like people have been saying it for a hundred years and I'm saying it now. Um, it's the, the, that humans are inherently for better or worse religious and will find ways to ascribe to ideologies, like no matter what it seems like. And, and then therefore yeah. indoctrinate people into our ideologies. And so it's like, it's like somehow we have to be so conscious of that because because yeah otherwise and, and i think the thing is is like often when we feel like we're right about something we don't think it's an ideology we just think it's true yeah and yeah and so that's why it's like <clears throat> you know it's it's so interesting how scientism has become a religion um it's interesting mm -hmm. to me how atheism has become a religion but mm -hmm. i think also um you know uh, like it it, it's challenging when we think about like you know the, that 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 is really sort of like the postmodern landscape is that like nothing is really true and it's impossible for us to find objectivity and like and while I have issues with postmodernism as a f 
philosophy, I think that it, it did expose a lot of the problems of like rationalism and reductionism in, in, in a positive way. And so it's like, mm-hmm. somehow we have to, we have to be able to embrace the complexity of, of everything without being so paralyzed um, because it's, it's so often that like we become we, we become dogmatized and I, I was talking about this with jake yesterday just like because we were talking about like how um how, how doing death in the garden like it, it's it's palpable like the how my energy f- has changed for it you know it's like at the beginning mm-hmm. i was just so gung-ho but it's because mm-hmm. i had a dogma that i was perpetuating and so it was really really mm-hmm. easy to be energized and be so excited about a dogma because you know, ultimately you're, you're perpetuating an, an ideology or like what you believe is true about the world. And it's like, as we've done the project, I've just become so much more um, inundated with like the actual complexity of what we're talking about, what we're dealing with. And so it's, it's, it's hard to sort of have that same sort of energy that you would have as like a zealot when actually what you're perpetuating is like a sense of uncertainty or a sense of like, we need to like, we, we don't know, we, there's so much that we don't know. And so, and, and yeah, I, th- I think every movement, every social movement is is subject to that. Um, regenerative mm-hmm. agriculture, uh, like a, a, a psychedelic, the psychedelic movement, like, and yeah. I, so it's like, I think no matter what you look at, uh, and we always have to have this like sense of self critique uh, and really questioning that sort of thing. But it's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to, it's uncomfortable to, it's a lot easier to live your life, like not questioning all of these programs, but, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's what Quinn says. It's like, you know, we're not going to solve the world with more programs. We're not going to solve the problem of the world with more programs. And in essence, what he's saying is that like, we actually have to dissolve our attachment to programs in general you know like mm-hmm. like I, I was reading this book and you know he was, was talking about like the importance of being like philosophically agnostic too you know it's like mm-hmm. marxists aren't going to solve the, the problem like uh, environmentalists aren't going to solve the, solve the problem feminists aren't going to solve the problem it's like we actually have to figure out how to like have an intellectual interest in all of these things and be truthful about like how how that impacts us and like yeah. what you know it's, it's complicated well and i think that's yeah. kind of what yeah oh sorry you go james uh yeah i mean i think you know talking about how these problems have existed for a very long time william james talks about it in, in the 19th century so you know like given given the absence of some sort of like a worldview that is you know coming from you know, a, a god or anything like that. People will build an entire edifice um, because that's what we do. You know, mm-hmm. um, and you see, you see a lot of that stuff um, sort of played out, um, especially with the the growth of the intellectual dark web characters that people, you know, and their their very twisted movement all the way to the right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, like Twain even talked about it in his mm-hmm. book What Is Man. You know, it's like a, it, as soon as you become dogmatic, then you've lost the battle. You know, mm-hmm. you've, in essence, sort of, um, you know, uh, the book that I'm reading right now is really profound. It kind of came at a moment where I'm struggling with a lot of these um, different realities of intermixing of things that I thought were separate before. Um, and it, the term that she uses is called strategic ignorance. Um, mm. You know, and so it's, you know, what, what it's it's the way that uh, Lindsay uh, Lindsay McGooey is her is her name. Um, I can't remember the name of the title, but we'll I'll, I, I'll send it to you. I, I know exactly what um, you're talking about, but I can't think of the title yeah. either. 
yeah. So she she wrote a book on uh, the Gates Foundation uh, that came out a while ago. Uh, it was one of the first hypercritical books on, on Gates. Um, it's called No Such Thing as a Free Gift. Um, and so I was starting to read that again. I was like, what? maybe she's written something you know, a little bit more recent. Uh, and so this new book, um, so I don't even know if it's new at this point, but I was like, I just picked it up again. Um, and she just spends a lot of time kind of talking about strategic ignorance. It's, a, it's a, you know, in the chocolate war, when you're talking about Cargill and Mars and all of them who are like, we just can't possibly like know where all of our stuff is, strategic ignorance. Like, mm -hmm. I can limit all the liability that I have by strategic ignorance. Um, and so for, you know, it works in corporate media, it works in governments, um, and it works for ideologies is that you never really look into all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it also works as a way for me to like have a bit of an anchor of what I feel really unmoored right now uh, into studying where where is my strategic ignorance? Mm -hmm. Like, what am I looking at um, in ways that seem dogmatic to myself um, mm -hmm. and yeah. recycle my own philosophy um so that i don't stagnate mm -hmm. um right. but man it's fucking hard work because yeah. you're just like super hard yeah it's so know. convenient I mean, to not know certain things yeah i mean it's like you know ben shapiro's new documentary on the world economic forum you know like utilizing you know peter goodman's 13 years of experience talking about uh, how these billionaire class of people are essentially the, the leaders into the 21st century. But Ben Shapiro is the guy who's like discovered the great conspiracy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. come like, on, man. Yeah. 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 Like, the, like, a guy who like pointedly like has such a minimal, if, if, if even existent critique of corporatism or like, it's like he cannot yeah. take the credit for this. Totally. He cannot yeah. take yeah. the credit. Yeah. Oh. And he's like, all he's really saying is my billionaires are better than your billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also like, Gates isn't my billionaire, and these guys aren't mine either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you, can't, you can't shove them into my fucking worldview. That happens you know? to me so um, much when I see the wrong person talking about the thing yeah. that's I care about. I'm like, not you. Yeah. Not you. Please pick yeah, somebody else to talk about this. Come on. <laughs> Give it to. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. this is great. I don't want to try to push us to wrap up, but it's been two hours and my painkillers are wearing off. Um, uh, but yeah. I just wanted to say that I think this you is. Did, you did get quiet. You did get a little quiet. <laughs> Dude, I've had this migraine for a week and it just comes on. I mean, y'all are welcome to continue this. But I just want to say that I think it's, I think it's good. The, the conversation has started about films because media and the way media and uh, and storytelling is used in this world and how used to and uh, desensitized we are to watching movies and and, and these mm -hmm. things that are trying to be bigger than us. I think again, I'm surprised by how little good conversation is happening. Mm -hmm. How few people left those theaters. Uh, or stayed in those theaters talking and wanting to talk about these things, whether you think the film was a success or a failure or any of these things, I think it's, at the least, they're always supposed to spark conversation. And that's the role that art can have, but very rarely does in our culture. So I think it's, I'm just, this is fun having these conversations and we should, yeah. we should do it again around movies. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and yeah. what you were just saying just made me think like, um, me, me and our roommate um, and my little sister, we went to go see Barbie together. And you know, I I knew I was going to go into Barbie with critique. Like I knew I knew that was like kind of the lens. Right. I wasn't I wasn't going to be entertained. I was going to like understand this movie and try to try to like come up with my own opinion about it. Um, but we had a really good conversation on the drive over to the theater, which uh, you know Kelly is a train. She has like a degree in acting. Our, our roommate Kelly has a degree in acting. 
And we were talking and I thought it was really great that Kelly admitted this because it's something that I hadn't really admitted to myself is that um, I, for so much of my life, I just viewed movies and TV shows as just entertainment. You know, it's, it's, it's either good or bad. It's either entertaining or it's mm. not. Um, and I think that, you know, and, and what Kelly was saying is that she felt that way until she went into uh, acting school and she was forced by like her education to actually like really critically engage with films and, and movies and TV shows. And I think that Jake had a similar experience. I'm assuming uh, growing up like uh, the, the your experience of Stella Adler, your experience just like taking film classes and film courses and things like that. And that's not something that I actually had been exposed to. Like I, I had always had an interest in film. Um, but I always was more interested in, in writing. And so I was more capable of like uh, seeing what I thought was bad writing or what I, um, but less so for some reason in the medium of film. And so I say, say all of this to say that it's like okay for people to also admit that like maybe we've all been sort of like watching films uncritically because we're viewing it as just entertainment. It's this, it's this, this like escapism. It's, a, it's an hour and a half for you to not have to think about your life and to focus on a story. Um, but I do think that like I just more and more and the more that I get interested in being a part of the film world, it's like actually it it really behooves all of us to like have a critical lens like with everything that we see and um, and yeah, so it's like it's like, a, it's like a diet, you know, if there's lead in the paint, you're going to get lead in your body. You're just going to get it And it's the same way with media and storytelling. If you watch or listen to something, it's going to get into you, especially if you're not thinking about it consciously and so mm -hmm. i think walking into barbie or walking into oppenheimer as entertainment you're just you're going to absorb things passively and it's going to affect you in ways that you're not you're not aware of and i think it's important that we mm -hmm. remain focused and critical of things yeah and that's why it's yeah. like i i finished my my piece on this of like just ask the question that's how you break the spell is like to at, yeah. at the very least be willing to critique something and and honestly like jake and i have gotten into arguments about things that i'm like that was entertaining why do you hate it so much and it's be and then it hmm. was like we would discuss it and i'd be like oh wait actually I, like when i think about it i actually think that that was stupid too like or i i didn't like that too i thought that that there was something wrong with that and so I've I've had to kind of like, you know, train myself like and to to be a little bit more of a critical thinker when it comes to that sort of thing. And so I like and and I think that that's something that our society is just really lacking in. And I don't think it's individuals' faults, but like critical thinking during this time is so important and and you can't just follow the person who says to fucking be a critical thinker because they're going to indoctrinate you into some bullshit too like you actually yourself have to like <laughs> stand on your own yeah. as a critical thinker <laughs> yeah and you know i think a lot of that um we can kind of finish on this but um the 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 notion that the that hollywood isn't a propaganda it gets propagandistic arm of u.s international policy um it needs to be dispelled um and i think that um if you look at it the way that uh, chinese media uh in essence builds an entire propaganda look, look at that with the lens of turning that lens on america mm -hmm. um you know germany had exactly the same thing germany used to have um the way the department of defense has a script approval division uh, in order to get low-cost loans of military equipment, uh, Nazi Germans used to have a script approval division in Hollywood, mm. um, and that that uh, it was engaged in casting. With too many Jews on this set. Um, the narrative uh, changes 
uh, and any number of different things. And they geared a lot of the films that Holly was ma was making prior to World War II uh, towards a German audience. Um, and so it's always had this other element to it that that is part of that. And corporatism has kind of mostly taken over that, which is the, our our natural reaction to to that right now is to feel like that. Right, is to feel that corporatism is fully, fully taken it over. But like, you know, if you're reading about how GE used to have the GE like um, you know TV hour, um, and then they hired Ronald Reagan to push uh, their economic policies that were these libertarian policies that were like anti-government and everything like that. It was all paid for by GE, um, who then shuttled this man who was a corporate agent who just acted the roles of these things into the presidency where he was able to reenact what was this corporatist vision of what how people were supposed to act and react mm -hmm. um you know so it's always been there mm -hmm. um it seems much more in our face now because we're like my god it's just so badly done <laughs> <Yeah. in> this, <laughs> right? you know um you know because you can go to these places you, you can walk away with a tin that's got barbie's face on it and shit and you know fucking popcorn you know <laughs> and you can like signal through and now it just seems like it's a, that much more in your face at least they used to hide it before you know yeah. Um, yeah. They, don't need, they don't need to hide it anymore we're all so they don't dumb. need to hide it we, right? just, we yeah, guzzle that shit down <laughs> yeah well that's a great note to end on thank you for doing this james we should do this yeah something similar again soon it's fun to riff on some starting point and see what happens. That's yeah, great. Yeah. 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 Totally. Like, cool. Love it. That was awesome. Cool. This will get bigger if you know what I mean. I'm sorry if you're living and you're 17. I heard it's over to be super thin. Friends aren't thick, so they can't come in. Feeling apathetic after scrolling through hell. I think I've got a boner, but I can't really tell. And the fans run. It's cynical, it's Adderall, and vitriol, and young people drinking Aperol. It's about time and This is what it looks like I'm sorry about my 20s I was learning the ropes I had a tendency of thinking about it After I spoke We're experiencing life Through the postmodern lens Oh, call it like it is Aesthetic out of not doing well And mining all the bits of you You think you can sell While the fans are on Whimsical Political 